Hello, this is Seneca. Welcome to Conversations with Myself. Chats between father and son or a set of twins mysteriously born 22 years apart. It's hard to say. In this episode, we'll be talking about our mutual friend, Michael Felsen, who we both first met when my dad was newly sober and I was about 13 years old and had just moved in with him. As usual, there's plenty of cursing, so if you're around other folks, you could consider headphones or just enjoy the ride. Thanks for listening. Okay, so long, long and short of it is, this is a, a household that is uh, has a certain amount of just kids running through it, friends of mine and me, and then has this whole other community of people coming through it that are in kids who va- are older. <laughs> yeah, but in in various stages of like frothiness of various kinds, I guess we could say. So there's a lot, and 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 straight up insanity, and and it's probably also worth mentioning that. For one reason, I don't know if this was average for the time or like it's a generational thing, but I, because I only had the one lived experience, I was just in that one place at that one time. But it seemed to me, even at the time, I remember thinking that there was a lot of these people who were either like actively coming to the end of their lives at a very young age because they couldn't stop doing whatever they were doing, or they were trying to stop doing whatever they had been doing that had been killing them. But that was also causing a lot of turmoil for obvious reasons. And I wonder, like, I have this theory looking back on it, uh, thinking about the place where we both grew up, where I grew up, around the Carmel Monterey area, Central California, that it's a, I feel this way about certain parts of Hawaii, too. Uh, Let's just say that there are places with certain kinds of energy in the world, and let's further say that those, those energies are healing they have, they offer something. There's something available in these areas. And a side effect of that fact is that the people who are attracted to those areas are people who have something that needs addressing. They have some wounds that they need help with, and they tend to congregate in these places that have these attractive energies. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Oddly, as much as I dislike the subtext of that, which is sort of the preordained nature of uh, being, I do recognize the validity <laughs> through my experience, as you say, it's just my experience of the world, I don't know that it's general, that there are places that seem to act as gravitational centers for people who are both in need of some healing energy and the place itself seems to have some of that. That That is an odd coincidence that I observe stays there. And then there's the public rumor that since the 60s in that particular place, Carmel Valley, Big Sur Coast, Zen Center, Tassajara, that whole area has has for a very long time attracted people who both represented the likelihood of that and fostered the notion that that was the truth. So I'm not sure which of those things was already present and which was manufactured. A little of both, let's say. Yeah. I think that's honestly the truth of it. Like you could say the same thing about Sedona. Like, okay, it's a, it's a, oh, it's a commercializing narrative that gets tagged onto something that's actually true. At some some right. some time way back, there's some kernel, and that's why a town like Carmel gets created. It, it's not they didn't pick that place totally at random, right? Yeah, it's a constructed community that was supposed to be a yeah, but the a, Chumash used it as a place because it was. Yeah. had an incredible surplus of available food and it was a moderate climate and it was likely to be a survivable atmosphere 
in mm -hmm. circumstances which were rough living. Tassajara the same, Big Sur the same, the Chumash and the Salina and the Tassajaran, and these were the local tribes. So there are these sort of sweet lodestone spots. Uh, Sedona is another one with a creek running right down the middle of the desert, high, cool, uh, with plenty of, of mm -hmm. support for living cultures. Yeah, so in some ways that was discovered you know, 1400 years before you and I were having these experiences there. Yeah. So yes. Okay, so anyway, long story short, I. I've, it felt it always felt to me like uh and maybe this is also like the pool of people who you had surrounded yourself with since you were young that i grew up with so i didn't know any better but they were they were you know uh largely like from this countercultural era young people with interesting and rather bohemian ideas about how to live and what was interesting and worthwhile and et cetera et cetera so we we had this kind of surrounding of people already and then um, several of the ones who were your closest friends at this around this same time were either getting sober or drifting off because that wasn't going to happen. So you were saying that James. So you met him through James, who's another. Who, both of these guys, by the way, did not <laughs> did not did not make a final transition to the phase that we are in now. They both passed away somewhere along. The yeah, we can't stages. consult them for the veracity of our telling of their story because they're <laughs> fucking dead. <laughs> but on the other hand, they can't bitch about it. At this point, either so names yeah. have not been changed to protect the innocent because <laughs> yeah, they're so they far beyond that, and and they don't care. <laughs> so tell and me, they also conveniently for us don't have any heirs who give a shit, so we can, you That's know, a good malign point. them yeah. by accident or purposefully. <laughs> Thought about that. Okay, so James, did James introduce you to Michael, or what? How did that even happen? Yeah, they they came to a party at my house, which was still having you know pretty exaggerated you know, sort of Nazi marching dust festooned parties, and though mm -hmm. they were sober ostensibly, they could come and see me. Right. James allowed himself to come and see me. And in some part, he was proselytizing, right? Because he'd gone through the DTs on my couch mm -hmm. to get sober. And all, at the time that he got sober, I had stopped drinking in the last year of my using it and stopped smoking because I knew that was bad for me. And drinking, I'd been threatened. The woman I was married to said I didn't marry a drunk. And I immediately realized, hmm, I should stop drinking. But because you know, <laughs> it's not the cocaine that's the problem at all. Yeah. She, well, she just mentioned the drinking. To so. be fair, that is, a, that is a true thing. And also, <laughs> I was in the wholesale side, so I could see that at least I didn't have a retail problem. I just had a drug problem. <laughs> when, at the time, I considered you, a retail problem to be far worse. <laughs> oh, it would have been much more costly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Financial burden. I could have been throwing my life away. <laughs> Okay, so he brought he brought Felsenfeld to a to a party at your house. To a party at my house, okay. yes. I, I remember the very party. There were many people there, all of whom were people that I knew. Many of whom, unfortunately, to say, were women who were friends of Mary's, who I also knew intimately, and was hoping that that wouldn't come out at the party because I was a little nervous about that. Now I wasn't around for much of the party because I was in the bathroom with uh, two of those flexible straws hooked together and a couple of grams of cocaine laid out in the bathtub, and that's where I spent my time um, uh, worrying about my inability to socialize and uh, making sure that I couldn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good combo. Yeah. Oh, it's a happy-go-lucky time. <laughs> the sounds, I do remember the sounds of the party. People did enjoy themselves. <laughs> you can't really vouch for that other than like i'm yeah. guessing i'm speculating but they they were they had happy sounds coming from that room 
<laughs> and they kept beating on the bathroom so, door. Yeah, so that's how I met him. <laughs> and then what what happened after that? So that's before, this is before, then pretty soon after that, you, uh, things did not work out with Mary. You, <laughs> yeah. you got, yeah. uh, you She split. made the wise choice, abandoned yeah. the boat, and then the, uh, the, the companion, her companion, uh, Charlie, came to the house, saved my life, um, and um, basically took me. And it was kind of like Judas stopping at the cross at 1145 <laughs> and saying, you know, things are not working out here. Let's, let's go to <laughs> you, gotta, you have to explain why that metaphor is apt. Because... Oh, because uh, Charlie uh, was my friend who had been in the wholesale business with myself and this other dead guy. Charlie's alive, but Anselm is dead with my dead friend Anselm. And so he had been off boffing my uh, wife because you know she was working out her unhappiness in a practical way. And uh, so he returned to the house that the evening she left me that morning, Saturday morning, mm-hmm. February 5th, 1983, she left me and he came at seven o'clock at night in this pelting, fucking ass whipping weather. El Nino 1983 was a beating and the lights had gone off and I'm sitting cringing <laughs> under that, that unfortunate turquoise yellow, you know, counter that we had there in the, between the kitchen and the dining room and the front room and the knock comes on the door and I, <laughs> I get over to the door I open it up and there's Charlie standing in the rain and you know he's clearly scared to death <laughs> but yeah motivated because he knows that you know right he when... knows that I know okay and he also knows that I have been recently increasingly unstable right um and he has witnessed some of my instability, which involved, you know, bad stuff. Suffice it to say, we can leave that for another chapter. Anyway, <laughs> but also, to, I, be, to be fair, this goes back a few years. His his the witnessing of your instability, like he's he has some context. Oh, yeah. He saw yeah. me uh, walk into a room and uh, take a shotgun away from a guy and tell him I was going to shove it up his ass and, you know, brush his teeth with it. And, you know, and I was quite mad. So Charlie was reasonably concerned that I might tip over. In yeah. the wrong direction, but he had guilt. Oh, I love that guilt thing. <laughs> he had guilt. Years later, he confessed that he felt torn between his love of me as a person and his friendship, which he had betrayed, and his love of the woman he was, you know, having sex with. And but he felt obliged to honor his friendship with me, which I, to this day, am astonished by, and constantly am reminded of what beauty the human heart has in a moment of complete betrayal there is a moment of saving somebody it's really quite astonishing so he comes to the house i open the door he says you need some help man and i'm just going (laughs) okay (laughs) i'm pretty sure that's an accurate representation and (laughs) and and he then just bundles me into the car and takes me a mile away to uh, Nakamura Hall at the Defense Language Institute, and I sit there in a room full of 350 people. I get the best moment of that whole meeting isn't the moment I realized that I didn't have to be doing what I was doing. It's the meeting, the moment where the woman in front of me turns around. It's a, a heroin addict I have known since she was 12, and she's now become quite considerable in her dimension. And she turns around and says, we were just waiting for you, Rusty, at which point I'm like... <laughs> 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 but I, that, that was impressive. <laughs> yeah, so Charlie saved my life by in practical means. He sat there in the meeting with me. He mm-hmm. took me home. He made sure that I was okay, and then he, he went back to fucking my wife. But <laughs> it's it's California. 
Um, also, to be fair to those two, they're still together. Like that's they, you know that's what? somewhat they, amazing. They, they were a wonderful uh, couple. I, it was an absolutely reasonable, completely decent, and understandable decision. And and they worked it out over time. I mean, she was not sure. They were just flaming around, you know, like young people do. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was sober. Like I think he he went to jail over the police coming to the house and right. finding 60 grand and, and he went to jail for a while. And while he was there, he got the word. I'm not talking about biblical or anything. He didn't convert. He just woke up and went, what the fuck, you know? And, mm-hmm. and he got there on his own. And, and then he was out realizing that there was this great woman in his life. She wanted to have kids. So did he, it was great. I, I think that they, and they're today still beautifully in love with one another. It's quite great. Actually, mm-hmm. the, my sobriety hinged on his compassion, I think, quite tangibly. It might have gone many other ways, but it didn't. That's how it went. And I and I took that proffer. And he and she stayed together and uh, had a lovely life, have a lovely life to this day. Mm-hmm. It's kind of great. It's yeah, great. it is. It's amazing. Okay, so where's Felsen come? So Felsen, um, so I get sober, and I'm you know vibrating at a pretty high rate of speed. And over the first six months or so, um, you know, June, let's say June of 1983 or so, I started seeing him around meetings. But by that time, you know, my teeth are no longer trying to get out of my mouth. Uh, I've started seeing that I could have sex with an incredible variety of people because I'm sober. It's quite an amazing calling card. And, uh, and you know, you watch the procession of people that I you know, brought through that house. Um, it, it turned out that you just all you had to do was say, "Yeah, I'm not a fucked up douchebag, and I have an income." <laughs> and you were, <laughs> and you had a, a pretty amazing calling card. Uh, the '80s was a time of great social and moral despair, which I <laughs> took full advantage of. That thing. <laughs> the stars were falling out of the skies. Every cocaine addict, heroin addict, anybody who was addicted to any shoe polish, uh, whatever it was, you know, they were. And, and I realized very quickly that that was actually an incredible pool of of possibility because as you pointed out at one point to some a female visitor i believe it was or maybe it was him at a dinner party on thursday that i'd gotten over two of the things i was addicted to but you pointed out in the public setting that there was still a third stool and that she them the women were the other thing Uh, yeah i think patty clegg was over for dinner that evening I don't remember who was there. I, I remember saying something about it because uh, I, I think because I was uh, I may have been freshly enraged by, uh, by by getting asked to participate in one of your schemes because the as listeners of this podcast may already realize we sound quite a bit alike on the phone. <laughs> and there were there were quite a few times even as and, and I was. 14, not, not even 14. I was just starting high school. And the, when, when I moved in with Rusty and we, he had just rented this place where fabulous place, a great house that was in Carmel Valley, which had a beautiful view. And, uh, it was a nice place for entertaining and hanging about hot tubs, swimming pool. Yes. All of, all of the swimming pools <laughs> is a unique situation yeah, but above ground doughboy, <laughs> 40 by 30. It was a huge above ground, Un, unheated, useful like a week of the year in terms of like comfort actually wanting to be in there it was great for the between hot tub dips yeah it was anyways i think that i i think that came up uh out of some moderate desperation on my part because i like you i every once in a while you would first of all you there would 
I was a I was a roving confidant, which was I was never entirely comfortable with, but that hap- that just happened, and and <laughs> and and then every once in a while you would kind of go over the line a little bit and ask me to help out because there were there was a lot to do. Oh, you know, I forgot to, all to, this to maintain to maintain the various narratives. That were, <laughs> that were operational at any one time was not really even, you got, I think you pushed it as far as you could possibly push it. And then it became oh. literally impossible to do it as a solo act anymore. So you needed, oh, yeah. you needed some extra, extra bandwidth. So you would periodically come to me and, and say like, this woman's going to call. And when she calls, this is what's happening. And so, <laughs> and, and, and I had a, I had a note because we had the phone, you know, this is like back in the day of landlines, of course, and answering machines and, uh, you know, and so I had, a, I would make a note that if, you know, if this, if this woman calls, here's a little bit about her. She, you know, she's a nurse. She's, <laughs> here's where we met, like just some, some skeletal information so that I could uh, make my way through a brief phone encounter. And then, you know, there'd be some outcome. There'd be sort of a, a box to check that was like, make sure... <laughs> Make sure her takeaway is the that this is going to happen or not or you know and it's um, yeah I think this is one of those occasions when you kind of you asked me to do that and that was my minor rebellion my minor act of rebellion such as I was capable of at the time was to go like well you know he's a sex addict in public which is like the the best I could do since I wasn't able to actually stand up for myself and go like I, I don't want to do this I'm not comfortable in here. Because I didn't know, how to, I did not know how to do that at that point. And I was life. such a great father that I was well, <laughs> unable yeah. to be selective about enlisting my own son to, <laughs> to act as my pimp. <laughs> no, I mean you did all the acquisition. I was just a maintenance. I was like a call center on a ca- oh, an occasional yeah. call center. Uh, yes, you were. I remember you answering the phone while I was standing there and me just waving you off and you just going on your own little whatever you thought the story was. And and later hearing about it from the woman, why did you act like that? It was just it was, it was just strange. And and <laughs> but, but, you know, because I was a duplicitous fuck and I was trying to get away with several narratives simultaneously. Yes, we're rich. I was trying to hand you off to a 14-year-old for a hot minute so I could get to see somebody else. Oh, yeah. Dude. No, that was def- that was definitely a feature of the time. Yeah, and so when Felsenfeld uh, fit into that perfectly, right? So yes. here comes here comes Felsenfeld, and this is a person whose his actual name is Felsenfeld, but he called himself Mike Felsen because mm-hmm. he didn't want to be seen to be Jewish, which I thought was <laughs> weird because that was a pretty hard thing to get around. He had sort of an accent. He came from Detroit. So he was a mm-hmm. Detroit guy whose father was a dry goods merchant. And if did you think he sounded like he came from a community of a certain type? I, yeah, he, he had a, broadly speaking, had a very stereotypical affect and accent. And yeah, he, he was a caricature. He was yeah. an utter, I, I, I always thought that it was that it was affected. I didn't. I, I mean, there was something. Uh, yeah. Well, perform, case, there was something. Yeah, I think there was a part. Of, there was a piece of performance in it because he knew that that was a reliable character that people understood that character, and he was always playing. He was always performing. I mean, that, that <laughs> yeah, was the no one question. consistent thing about him. I don't think. I don't think I ever saw. I'm not sure that I ever saw an honest, a totally transparent moment with him. 
well, that's a rare, that was a rare thing in my experience of him as well. He was always in some sort of garb, right? He always had yeah. some sort of character he was wearing or trying out or sure he was actually living. And that was the other thing when he was in these delusional states where we're not infrequent, um, he actually inhabited these characters. So to his mind, they were totally true. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, yeah, to a, to a, I mean, to a completely uh, obsessive and immersive point. I mean, you should yeah. probably at, at that, that leads us naturally into the, the TV, the soap opera. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, during this, during the first year or so that I knew him, let's say 84, um, he sort of disappeared for a while. And that was interesting because I had, um, I was interested in him. He was absolutely one of the best shit talkers I had ever met in my life. This guy could, he made me look as though I was hesitating to tell a story and with rich, colorful stories. And the odd thing about them, they were almost always true. You knew they were true. They were not, they were mm -hmm. embroidered. They were beautifully laid out, but they were true stories. You could feel it. And I wanted him to succeed at something, but he just fell off the map. And I found out, came to find out that he was living in a, uh, an apartment up in the woods in Carmel, uh, up toward the top of uh, San Marcos. So I decided I'd go visit him, called him up. Yeah, come on by. I'm up here. I don't get out much. This was the beginning of what was to be a long period of 20 years of me realizing that I don't get out much. Was, you know. <laughs> if he had gotten around to an autobiography, that would have been a pretty apt title. Yeah, I don't get out much was the sort of sign language for these very intense periods of withdrawal and um, shamanistic yeah. engagement with alter egos. Although that what's weird is that he did, he professionally, he did get out much like when he wasn't, Oh no, but that to him wasn't getting out. I know. Cause it was work, but anyways, we'll get to that. So, so, sorry. <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a true story. So, so I, I, I go by, I take Karen with me. It's like, who's a new girlfriend, uh, you know, just getting to know this lovely woman, <laughs> very innocent. It's a, a classy guy to introduce her to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to introduce you to my friend, Michael. So I go over, you have to go downstairs through the upstairs apartment and there's some serious douchebaggery going on with the upstairs tenant whom I recognize as a long-term heroin addict, uh, some Italian dude that I knew, um, living upstairs. I'm immediately sort of saying, ah, oh, dude, that sort of puts me off my feed. What's Mike doing living in this house? Go down, go through the other entrance that's in the bottom. You have to go through a house to get to the apartment. It's very kludgy and go into the knock knock my, he comes to the door as soon as he comes to the door he says hey come on in um uh, but i but i'll just have to wait a minute I'm, I'm i'm sort of visiting with somebody you know one thinks he's on the phone yeah you know? so we march in and he marches in with us and he sort of raises his finger to his lips you know kind of make sure that you're not talking too much you suppose he's got a i don't know private party on the line he's trying to work something out and he sits down on the sofa and indicates we should sit down on the sofa. But there is no phone. There is the television. And he starts talking to the television. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, I mean, I immediately recognized, because I'd been in very odd situations not terribly long in the past, in which people spoke to themselves or the pistol or whatever it was. And <laughs> it's like... 
Karen just I remember looked at me just gave me this sort of sidelong look not not weird she was a very sophisticated lady <laughs> and she just sort of looked at me with this sort of what look in her face and and Michael talked to the television I think it was uh, Lucy and Desi mm. he was having this relationship with he would speak they would speak he would literally tailor his response to to the mm. language of the episode. He sort of inserted himself. It was amazing to watch. He sort of edited himself into the conversation they were having as television characters and somehow made it a coherent whole, which included him. And that, we watched this for, I don't know, 10 minutes. It was a long, long time to be in an altered state without ever having done anything but walked into a room. Mm -hmm. And then he got up and turned the television off and sat down and said, I just love those people. You know, they're so great. And (laughs) (laughs) at which point I had already realized things could go oddly wrong if you didn't sort of work with that. And, I cried because I've seen a lot of weird stuff, but I had never seen even anything even within you know a shade of that. And I just agreed, and Karen and I chatted with him, and we talked about his relationship with these friends he found, and so on and so forth. And then we left after about an hour. We got in the street. Karen said, "What in the world was that?" And I said, "That was madness." <laughs> <laughs> and we kind of drove away. Yeah. But, you know, I thought less of him. Here's the here's the part where I was fucked up. <laughs> I never thought less of him for it. I just thought, wow, that was fucking spectacular. <laughs> Which going back to our early talk about the adolescence, <laughs> like a mature adult might have made other decisions. Yeah. About possibly. But yeah. I mean, this is in a weird way, I think this is why he was Attracted to, I mean, you were one of the few people he would go out to see. Yeah. As far as I know, like there were very few people that he would ever leave his house. Up, he okay. was the only other person he would go see. But that kind of makes an equal amount of sense. Like the two of you, there's something feral about both of you. There's some like, uh, there's something, I don't know how, that's probably the best word I can come up with for it. There's a, there's a charismatic, but there's a, there's an understanding for a guy like that. I think that he can feel between he and I. Yeah, yeah. Or oh, or, or him absolutely. and James. Like I think either one of you, both both of you, both you and James had some sort of like you just, a, a person like him who was spectacularly attuned to feeling people out because of his professional work, which was criminal, hundred yeah. percent. But but he needed to to read people. He he had to have that. He had that skill, like in spades. Oh, and so I think that he was easily able to see in a, almost every all of humanity that there's no way for him to be him to be with them. Like he couldn't right. do, he couldn't do that. Then you two, he probably found some, some sort of kindred sensation and realized like, uh, yeah. this is okay. I don't have to, I, I, he still would yeah. do his shtick. He was still, he was still performing, but he would, was comfortably. Well, doing, he was, or he I don't know what, that, he, that he didn't have to divine the main chance. Mm-hmm. In those two circumstances, James was a co-addict with him. And knew and 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 was you know using a variety of opioids and whatever with him mm-hmm. over the time. And I had also been involved in criminal enterprise and was mm-hmm. equally chancy. 
in my own way. And and in the only time in our early time together that the subject came up and he was in this odd moment and sort of slightly menacing, I just leaned into him and said, that's, you know, something you want to keep off the table. And that was that. And it went away. Never saw it again. Mm-hmm. You know, because I just let him know that if I saw any more of it, it was going to not go well. Yeah. You know? And he was never, you may remember, mm. he was a very, very dangerous person. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was super really clear. A dangerous person. And, and he sort of, you know, understood where the rail was for that. And usually for him, everybody was vulnerable. Everybody was vulnerable. I don't care if they were heavily armed. He didn't give a shit. Um, they weren't just, I think they weren't just vulnerable. They were all marks. They were all potential, not, not targets of violence, but exploitation of one kind or another. Like everybody in the world. They threatened him with violence. Oh yeah, sure. They they were, they were making a serious mistake unless they just shot him and killed him. Yeah. No, yes. He was a mad dog. You, you, you would have had to put him down or not get involved. Yes. And the people who tried to put him down didn't succeed. And that's, those are some of his stories and they are real. Um, and, and, but, you know, but he was, what was great about Michael, what I loved about him, and, and I think you appreciated this as well. You were you were around Weston. You were around people who were ultimately. Yeah, I just so, thought I just thought of him because that's I was just realizing he, that Felsenfeld's not at all, not even close to the only that type of character kept coming up. Like yeah. he, that type of person was around a lot as when I was a kid, and I was never in danger from them. But they were around. Uh, Anselm was another one. Yeah. Like, like just uh, ferocious, horrible, vicious yeah. pe- people, but uh, who none of that, that was all on the other face of them. Right, right. And if then, you were behind them, you were all good. Yeah. What do you, where did those come from? But they came through you. They, it wasn't about me. I was just there. I was no, just but being you a, were, but it was, but it they, was they were attracted. They were attracted. They were even more attracted to you because I was something for them to watch out for. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But, well, I, I didn't know at the time, and I can only speculate really now. I, I actually was a person who loved people, and I had a great desire to be friends with people. And in my early childhood, I had been abandoned by a couple of kids who were my friends, and they had blamed me for the failure of our friendship, and it really injured me because I was absolutely sure I had nothing to do with it. I wasn't a crazy or violent or offensive kid. They just you know, needed somebody to blame their, you know, emotional failure on. And I happened to fit the bill because I was eccentric. Right. So they laid it down on me. So it did make me really interested in friendships. And it happened that I fell in very early. And you knew these men, particularly Anselm. I fell in very early with criminals. I loved crime. I'd make no, I make no apology for that. I loved crime. The great thing about crime is that it has no boundary. You can determine uh, it's sort of a beat to fit, paint to match reality, which has very high rewards, monetary rewards, also incredibly adrenalizing. And at the same time, uh, puts you in the company of people who are pretty high energy people. It's sort of the Harvard Business School for adrenaline. And um, and, and it turned out that my skill in that, uh, which you know one doesn't know when one goes into that work, was the deal making, mm-hmm. you know. And it turned out that the skill of Anselm was not only deal making, but um, taking care of the uh, exigencies that may arise from dealing with people who have a different set of rules. You know, once you're with that class of people, violence, 
um, betrayal, untrustworthiness. They're everywhere else in the society, but there, they're sort of the coin of the realm. Mm -hmm. And 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 I found myself with a friend who was this guy was darling. He was magical. I took a lot of acid with him, ate peyote with him, marched up and down the coast of California, did a lot of wonderful and mad things with him. But he also, as he became, uh, as he entered his late teens, uh, he became armed. And mm -hmm. as the business we were in, the business of marijuana became a more commercial enterprise and other elements, business elements, uh, gangsters came into that. Um, if you wanted to stay in that business space, you operated differently and Anselm was equipped for that. And so was Weston. And so were, you know, others. yeah. And the, yeah. the and fact I, is you, I, you, you stayed in, I mean, you, your, your track was actually replicated probably, yeah. probably thousands of times over, you know, uh, young hippie grow your own back to the lander, you know, somewhere along the line, you, you step through psychedelics and into other, uh, other, adr just adrenaline shit into your cocaines and your other shit. And then the, you end up, instead of being in the company of fellow travelers along the psychedelic path, you end up marketing products that are really, really expensive. And there's a lot of cash money involved and there's a lot of violent, nasty people involved. A high competitive threshold. Yes. <laughs> but the fact is that if you're going to do that kind of work, it's not enough to be you who you, you know, you could make the deals and do the sales and come up with interesting and clever plans on how to get shit from point A to point B, for instance, maybe, or, or how to produce things in a different way that's better economically, but you're not muscling anything, but you can't. Well, you're, yeah, you're not, you're not taking that. And when, the, and in that time, I don't know, God knows how it is in people, who, you know, among people who are true gangsters and all that, because I certainly don't pretend that that have been part of my life. I mean, it was just that I was in a, in a place and with people who became increasingly hazardous to one another and became armed and, and actually became dangerous and were deadly to one another. And that sort of happens a, a day at a time, right? And so yeah. I went through a long period of time where Anselm and I were in business and people like Felsen were around and then they went away and I, you know, stayed, I drank a lot and, but I, you know, did the CCC, I, you know, built buildings and I became a bond broker. And then as I w came into my early thirties, I suddenly had a lot of money and those people were still in my life and their business interests had changed. And when they required um, capital infusions and their interests uh, mm -hmm. required more more of that. They were looking for somebody who who had sympathy for them as individuals. So that's how I got involved in in that part of it. I just started providing capital, and naturally, I had a drug addicted, alcohol laden consciousness, and so it didn't seem that outrageous. Like I said very early in this conversation, you know, it was a wholesale proposition. I just looked at it like that. I was like, yeah, okay, well, I give these guys. X amount of money, 50,000 bucks, whatever it is. We build a lab. Um, you know, I'm not involved in that. Um, I'm just, uh, you know. Of course you you were. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I was know. involved in a bit of it, to hiring the people, yeah. figuring out the chemistry. Blah, yeah. All, but but to my mind, uh, one, one, I think, I don't know what anybody else says. I just insulated myself from the consequence portion of the program. By saying, you know, I'm a bond broker. I go to work. I drive a nice car. I've got pleasant suits. I have this mm -hmm. wife and child. It's all, you know, bullshit. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> but I have a solid case for it. I'll tell you. And, until it just went crisp, you know, and Charlie ended up at my house. And and Felsenfeld 
was a person who never really left that. No, so, he absolutely never left it. He it became. Uh, I mean, he was a career criminal till up until the very end. He would run various schemes. I remember him. I remember the first time he explained one to me, which was the one he was running. I think with Home Depots, and uh, it was a simple boosting. boosting yeah, scheme. it was a it was a simple uh, theft and re, re, theft and take back. Right. So it was, so it was called a boost. Yeah, so for, for for those of you who don't know a lot of ins and outs of criminal schemes, this was my first introduction to a really, really common one, but this is something that he was doing. He would literally, he would be gone for a couple weeks at a time, and in that time, he would have driven, like, all of California, for instance. Like every city. Every, home, every home Depot that exists. Yeah. And this, at the time, wasn't as many as exist now, but still, it was a shit ton of Home Depots, and he would have gone to all of them because... Part of it is you're not going to, you know, you don't return stolen merchandise to the same store you took it from. So you have to, you have to organize your theft and returning around a schedule of events. It was like the, the, level, was, of, yeah, was the level of planning and detail. It was logistics. He was shocking. a great logistics man. Yeah, it was totally shocking. And, it was, and, and he would course, make $100,000 in two weeks. Yeah. And then he would not do that again for a while. And then just to complete the cycle, like what he, what he explained to me in the end was it was all gift card based, which I think is still how it's done now. I don't, I think maybe this was innovative at the time. I don't really know, but I mean, it was, I guess gift cards were still it was kind, of, kind of new. So yeah. this is the mid eighties and he was doing this. So probably he was on the cutting edge of something and he had been a credit card fraudster before this. Oh wait, so, let's stop for a second. Okay. <laughs> so he was the first, when he left. Okay. So his first crime, the very first crime he ever did uh, he lived in Detroit. He decided that he didn't want to be in the dry goods business, so he decided he was going to be a beautician. A hairdresser. A hairdresser. Yeah. So he went to beauty school, and as a 20-year-old guy, he opened a beauty shop in Detroit, in a pretty rough neighborhood in Detroit. Um, his first clients and his main clients were black women who were prostitutes. Because they found out he knew how to do their hair. Yeah, he even though he, he was realized, a white guy, even though he's a white guy, he yeah. had a natural hand with hair. I mean, he really knew how to make these women look their best. And he had a natural attraction to them as people. Uh, he just loved their company. So there was this one woman. I don't remember her name. I don't know if he ever even told me her name, but it's a it's a sweet little story. So she comes in and after she's been coming in for a while, she says, uh, she says, listen, sweetheart, um, I'd like you to. I'd like you to to take over, being my pimp. And he said, you know, I, I I didn't really react to that. I just thought, well, that's a weird idea. And he said, so just out of my mouth popped, well, baby, you bring me ten thousand dollars in a gold Cadillac, and I'll do the job. So a week later, she rolls up in a gold Cadillac and puts ten thousand dollars in his hand. And says, okay, you're hired. And he he said, I I thought I am done being a beautician, motherfucker. <laughs> that is, I'm out. <laughs> But there was a complication, of course. Yeah. And the complication was her pre-existing arrangement with the pimp. Mm-hmm. So he, within a week, he's, he was walking down the street. This is how he recounts it. He's walking down the street, and this man and his buddy come up to him, and the guy grabs him by the hair, and um, the other guy sticks a gun in his stomach and says, if I ever see you around here again, I'll blow your fucking head off. You need to leave town. And they walk away so they got about three steps and he ran up and 
kicked the one guy in the back of the head, took his gun, jammed it in the mouth of the other guy who he knocked down with the gun and said, if I ever see you two motherfuckers again, I will fucking kill both of you. And he never saw him again and he became a pimp. So after a while that ran cold for him, I don't, I never did get exactly how that happened, but he decided that he needed a break. So he had some cash set aside. So he went to Europe, to Switzerland, to ski. So he, which, which, he'd never which is absurd. Which he'd never done. <laughs> but he decided he was going to go to Switzerland to ski. And he couldn't take any of the girls with him, so he went by himself. And by that time, he'd heard about credit card fraud. And so he figured out how to get dozens of credit cards and thus dozens of false identities. And he made $6 million in Europe over the next four years and spent $6 million living high on the hog in France and Switzerland, skiing everywhere and having sex with everyone he possibly could and going wherever the rich people were and having money coming out of his ass. So that's how he got into the credit card thing. Right. That's how he learned to work it. So it makes perfect sense. So then he was he just extended that once gift cards became a yeah. thing, then he, he understood how to use them and how to, you know. So he would, he would do these. And this is at the end of his career, too. So this was like him. I mean, I'm sure that a younger Felsen would have tooled this up into, into a machine that would have made a lot of money. But this was just how he was supporting himself, like, really on the rough by this point in his life. Like, he was fading. I mean, he felt you know, it was bad. He would complain, I'm barely getting by. And you're like, yeah. dude, you've got $100,000 in your fucking glove compartment. But he would also he would also take. Do you those, remember that him yeah, having the money? I do. I do. You know what else I remember is I also I always remember like the the idea of him having been a hairdresser was the weirdest idea because his hair was, was awful, spectacularly awful. Not just awful, but like I like like yellow aggressively. Yellow. Yes, like aggressively, intentionally horrendous. This odd thinning mass of like straw colored horror show but it was always like the, the roots were always undone so it was like it just i just oh, remember yeah. and, every and time like i would he was see having, him it was like he was having a car accident with a peroxide bottle once every two weeks it was, <laughs> was quite a and then not washing it in between just this, oh, yeah. just this horror oh. show on his head oh. and he would always show up and then they would and then he, so i always just i remember as a kid thinking like this guy this guy ever did a like how it just makes no sense, <laughs> but of course, but you know it was just where he was at at that time. But yeah. to get back to the money, like remember he he would he would also periodically he would not have any more money because he would bury it. Oh yeah. So then oh, he yeah. would he would take he would go out and earn you know a hundred grand or a couple hundred grand in a couple of weeks running some scam. But then he would take it back to his house and he would bury it. And then he would. Well, go that's when a, he lived on the coast. Yeah, when he lived in the little red house. So then he yeah. but but he would go on a bender and forget. <laughs> Where he put, put it. So he really, then, it really was true. He didn't have that money anymore. And then he, and then the rains came in, <laughs> in 19, right. like 1996 or something. The rains came and, and, and there was a landslide and all of the places he had marked out carefully over the 10 years he lived in that little, in that prison cabin. It was cabin. probably millions of dollars just, in cash. Just moved around. <laughs> so this is, which we're digressing to this. So he calls me up and he says, uh, I lost my money. I said, what do you mean you lost your money? Isn't it buried in the yard? He said, yeah. I said, don't you have a map? He goes, yeah. I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, the hill slid. I said, well, get a fucking metal detector. You buried it in, in coffee cans. He said, I did. It didn't work. I couldn't find anything. So I was like, 
okay, then, you know, get some dudes in there and just debride the hill. So he did do that. Six Mexican dudes, two weeks, they found like 27 cans. And there was like a half a million dollars that he'd put in the cans. But, oh no, strict portion of the program, the water had essentially rotted the money. So just sitting there in a sodden, rotten state. So he had half a million dollars in blob. (laughs) (laughs) Which I had some sympathy for but but that time with all the other shit that i knew about his life and all oh, the other God. failed prop i mean i had well, we'll go back to how i got him a job and what he did with that but um oh i forgot about that yes oh, that's a great episode too that is so that is probably one of the classic scams i've ever known in my life and so simple no victim at all um so except him um so <laughs> so he, he i researched this thought and i said okay so because remember, I was working in, by that time, I had a business in Peru. And yeah. I was freeze-drying asparagus. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, let's freeze-dry the shit and then send it to the treasury. He said, no, no way, that's never going to work. Well, he actually, I made him do the research. Turned out, yes, the treasury, if they were able to do it, they could do it. So we found a service in Nashville, Tennessee, that could actually uh, freeze-dry it and then take it apart and send it to the treasury for 10% of the value. So he recovered about three hundred and fifty thousand bucks from those cans, but he lost what he said was two million bucks. I believe it. I mean, and it was what? just yeah. gone. Yeah, you know, because he couldn't. You know, it's interesting. There's a guy who could manage, like you're saying, all these details, incredible minutia, logistic guy was a logistics, brilliant logistics guy, and when it came down to managing his actual life, he had zero capability. Zero capability. He couldn't manage the drugs input. He couldn't manage any social connection. He couldn't get out of the house. Mm-hmm. And he scared himself to death. Uh, he was the greatest storyteller I ever heard, and he convinced himself that he was incapable of everything because he was the greatest storyteller that he ever met. You remember the, the tongue cancer? Well, that's, that's sort of the, forget that. That's going too far forward. So let's go back um, to the house. So you meet him, we're hanging out. He starts coming over to the house more. And then one evening, we had these dinners. Uh, Wednesdays or Thursdays? They were Thursday evening dinners. Thursdays. Every Thursday, either you would cook and I would host, or you would host and I would cook. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Yep. And and we had people over. And and I didn't drink, but we had Ralph's liquor cabinet. Ralph Poole, the guy who owned the house, who gave it to us for nothing for, I don't know, six years. I had this beautiful liquor cabinet, and it was full, so I, you know, I could always give people liquor. And Seneca generally served. Um, and... Uh, he came over to the house one night, and I don't know exactly what was on the menu, but I know there were like nine or ten people. He was one of them, and he was sitting to the mm-hmm. right of you. And um, I know mashed potatoes was on the menu, and uh, you should tell why we would remember the mashed potatoes. <laughs> because he, he just, in mid... Well, I don't, yes, he was, he was being a real raconteur and entertaining the troops. And then just in the middle... In the middle of a word, not even a sentence, just in the middle of a word, he just, <laughs> the lights in his eyes just went out and he just collapsed face forward right into the plate, like just dropped precipitously <laughs> into the plate and and it hit the, luckily for him, I think, he hit kind of like side on his face, not not nose down, but side on into the mashed potatoes and just, just wiped out. You know, we were all sort of sitting there for a second, just like, because it happened so <laughs> abruptly. 
that we, nobody knew what the hell was going on. And so I, I'll, I remember just like in a daze sort of reaching over and grabbing the back of his head and removing it from the plate because the, the only thing that was in my mind was he's going to drown. That was the only thing I could think of was, oh, he's going to die in those potatoes because he can't breathe through that. So I better move his head so that he doesn't not only pass out, but then perish from drowning, <laughs> drowning at dinner. But then the really weird part about that was he just popped back up. He, like a minute later, I, I just sort of tipped him out of the plate and he still had shit all over his face. And, and, and I was just sort of sitting there trying to figure out what was the right thing to do next because it was a, kind of uncomfortable. And he just popped back up like nothing had happened just whip, you know, and continued, just carried on, <laughs> not having any idea that he'd been out. He, he, he didn't know. I don't think that he had any idea that that had happened. I remember you telling, handing him the, the, handing yeah. the napkin and saying, you know, it's kind of like indicating you know, you've got something you to on up. the side of your face. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing and no one else i remember there was absolute silence not a soul said a thing no i think everybody was so profoundly uncomfortable with what they just witnessed <laughs> that they were just kind of just dumbstruck yeah uh, uh, you know i don't think yeah. i'm not sure that we were so uh such such good hosts that we'd even introduced everybody to each other i think a lot of people around that table had no idea who this guy was or where he had come from <laughs> And he was just yammering on and then passed out in his food, pops back up and continues. And everybody was sort of like, uh, okay, it's going to wait. I'm going to wait a polite interval and then get myself out of this situation. <laughs> I don't want to engage with this at all. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember what happened at the rest of that dinner party, but I'm pretty sure it broke up early. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so when did you, you got him a job at the selling bonds? Oh, so this guy was one of the great, just great rock tours ever. Anybody, he could tell a story that was beautiful and spellbinding and he was charming. It didn't matter his hair. I was always shocked. I mean, it didn't matter how he looked. He could have been a cadaver and he could have convinced people to listen to him. He was an extraordinary salesman. So I thought, mm -hmm. why don't you get a legitimate job? At which he said, are, are you, you know, questioning the legitimacy of my present undertaking? And I said, yeah, man, you know, I, I am absolutely doing that. <laughs> but... Uh, I'm just trying to I'm just trying to see if maybe we couldn't give you a life that's a little less hazardous. So after you know quarreling with me for some time, he agreed that I that he would do it. So I got him an interview. I completely pre-sold the package. And this man that I worked for, who is this sort of lovely Swiss Jewish guy, and the only reason that's important is because uh, he Fred um, loved uh, gold coins. And I asked him once why he collected gold coins and just looked at me and said, I'm Jewish. It's Switzerland. That seems like a safe thing for a Jew. And I was like, okay, Fred, I get that. Um, so he, Fred hired him in a minute. He's like, oh boy, because I could sell. And I told him that this man made me look like I was taking a rest. So he worked out beautifully and I was gone. I'd left. I got him a job after I was gone out of that company. So I came to visit Felsen a couple times at the shop mm -hmm. and he was just never, I just never caught him there, you know, but he was out for coffee or whatever. And, and one time I came, <laughs> remember this. So one time I came and they said, well, Fred fired him. And, and I, I, I said, what? I, I thought he was working on it. He said, yeah, Fred fired him. So I went down and saw him. I said, Mike, what the fuck happened? I thought you were doing so well. He said, 
yeah, well, you know, I just I, I, I took that job as a favor to you, Rusty, because you're such a good friend and I and I didn't want to disappoint you. And, I, you know, I could sell bonds. But I really hated talking to those motherfuckers because they were just boring as fuck. And everybody in that office is a lack wit, <laughs> you know, and he named a couple of lack wits. And I was like, well, I have to agree with that. And I, and, 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 and I said, so, but, but you worked there for six months. He said, oh, no, I really didn't. He said, my numbers, my numbers were bad. And I said, well, what do you mean? I said, I would come in and, you know, your stuff was there. And he said, yeah, he said it was great. He said, I would come in in the morning and I would go to my desk and I would greet everybody and I would put my jacket on the desk and then I would say I was going to coffee. <laughs> and I would go home and I would take a nap and I would make some money on the phone because he had other ways of making money on the phone. Uh-huh. Much more apparently than bond selling and required less energy and he didn't have to convince anybody and um turned out he had a warehouse of people in los angeles until he was until he was near his death he had a warehouse of people working in los angeles doing um credit card schemes for him uh off of a software that he developed while he was fucked up uh, he had cancer anyway so um, I didn't know any of that at the time, so it, he would go in because he wanted to sort of keep the social myth that I had created for him going as a means of thanking me, I guess. I don't know what that was about. But he would put his coat on the thing. He would walk over to the secretary, ask if she wanted any coffee. She, he knew she didn't drink coffee. She would inevitably say no. Do you want anything? No. She was always polite. He would say, I'll be right back. He would go home, hang out, spend the day down there. At 2.30, he'd march back in the door with a cup of coffee in his hand, walk over to his desk. You know, nod and smile and talk to some people, sit at the desk for half an hour, get up and leave. So he was literally never there. <laughs> <laughs> but his jacket was there all day long. <laughs> That's just such a perverse story. Like, what, what on Cartier, earth? No, but Cartier, Cartier told me he was the easiest person to work with he'd ever had. <laughs> I was like, well, of course he was. Yeah, he, was. he wasn't there. <laughs> Best employee I ever had. Ah, <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah, Felson. He was a magical creature of some kind. You know, he was. He was you know. a weirdly, uh, magically self-destructive creature. Oh yeah. When he had, he Just told me don't. about how he'd uh, how he'd come to Earth from his cocaine thing. It was a great story. So he. He realized, uh, as he was blackmailing Danny Thomas, he realized that he had a cocaine problem because some gangsters showed up at his house and threatened him. Not because of his drug enterprise or his prostitution, but because he was, you know, trying to blackmail Danny Thomas, who was a famous guy at the time. Um, And that's a whole other story. Anyway, so he was living in his house at that time, and he thought he was having parties. It turned out he was hallucinating entire days-long parties in which no one was in this massive 5,800 square foot house he had in the Hollywood Hills. He was literally living by himself in relative squalor, sucking up hundreds of thousands of dollars of the product, which at the end he didn't seem to be paying for, mm-hmm. along with prostitutes who he thought were still there who were long gone. He literally was in the company of phant- phantoms, much like the television, pro- it was a precursor to the television engagement with uh, the Desi Arnaz and his lovely wife, Lucille. So. <laughs> So, so he said, you know, I, I just woke up one morning after I, I realized that I'd been out of it for a week. And he said, and somebody stopped by and suggested that I should go to a treatment center. I said, fuck that. You know, I'm not going to a treatment center. I got a problem. It's not that big a problem. So he packed up his car. He said, I've always wanted to go up to Carmel. I'll just go up to Carmel. So, so I took some product with me and went to Carmel, fully intending 
to get over my addiction, I took $100,000 worth of cocaine with me, which didn't belong to him. Mm-hmm. But he, So he goes and he stays at, at the ranch in one of those little white cabins down by, by the lagoon. <laughs> right next door to my elementary school. <laughs> yeah. Surrounded by charming characters, whether I wanted to be or not. <laughs> yeah, which at that oh, time, God. I mean, his closest neighbors were drunks at the ranch, the horses right mm-hmm. behind down the hill, mm-hmm. the kids at the school. And a bunch and of the, empty tennis and, courts. And, yeah. yeah, empty tennis courts. And whoever else was going through the DTs or whatever their <laughs> yeah. personal crisis was in the other cabins. Yeah. So it turns out the fellows whom he had, you know, lifted the coke from found out where he was somehow and arrived and deprived him of his freedom, bound him up and threw him in the trunk of their car. Well, they had rented a house right next to the police station, actually one building away because the youth center in Carmel on the hill is just one house away. So there's the police station, the youth center, and then there's this private house. Well, I used to go to parties in that private house. It's a house up on the hillside, steep in that forest, you know, that little Mm -hmm. fir forest there overlooking the steep hill. And it's on stilts, right? It's, you know, 20 feet off the ground at the deck. Well, they bound him to a chair in the room and threatened to take his life and if he didn't produce and so forth. And they were serious people, so he, he realized that he might have gone a bit too far and might be, you know, short on remaining fuel. And um, so they went in the kitchen to do something, and he, you know, had his hands bound behind his back, behind his chair, and his, and his feet, his legs were, his ankles were duct taped to the chair. And he just realized where he was, and he basically um, stood up in a crouch and threw himself backwards through the picture window out of the house. (laughs) Well, that's a 20-foot fall. I mean, that's a real thing. And when he told me this, I knew he couldn't be bullshitting me because I know that house, and I know where he was talking about, and you couldn't make that up. And uh, you would have had to be in the house and understand because the the deck, if you you were on this side of the front room, you you would have thrown yourself out the window and landed on the deck. But if you were at the left side of the room, you would have basically floored a ceiling window. You'd have just gone down into the forest, Mm -hmm. which is what he did. Went through a plate grass window out down into the forest. Now, he landed on his side, crushed the chair, didn't break anything, sort of slightly dislocated his right shoulder, he told me, uh, bruised the fuck out of his head, knocked himself half unconscious. But because the chair broke into pieces, he could use his hands. So he couldn't exactly fix everything, but he pulled the pieces of the chair that were on his legs out so he could run, and he just ran off into the darkness. with his pieces of chair still taped to his body and stuff mm-hmm. and in a little, you know, mightily fucked up. Um, but that pissed him off. So he got, he got angry and he said, you know, I, you know, I was trying to come down. I'd been like going through a bastard of a, you know, withdrawal for days. And I was, you know, you know, basically in a black place. And these guys, you know, bless their hearts had, you know, revived my interest in living. <laughs> he saw it as a blessing. And um, and made me angry. So uh, so I laid I laid there out in the woods. I went up in the hill. I laid there in the woods and listened to him looking around for me. He said, but I knew where, that I was in the neighborhood. They couldn't get too crazy, you know, because I was, you know, they couldn't manhunt somebody near the police station. And um, I waited. 
and I gradually worked my way free of it and I got my hands free and I got my circulation back and and I waited until it was like four o'clock in the morning and the lights went off in the house and then I went and I kicked the door in and I got one of the guys and I beat him near death with a shotgun and I told the other guy that I'd blow his fucking head off and I didn't care and I taped them both up and put them in the trunk of their car and I drove them to Los Angeles and dumped them on the lawn of the guy who they came from with a note that said, if you fuck with me again, I'll come down here and kill you and your whole family. And I never saw him again. <laughs> That's how Mike Felsenfeld got sober. <clears throat> <laughs> but, oh wait, the is, he still had to get rid of $100,000 of the product, which he was no longer using. Oh, which is how he came to know Hockey and other people in the community because he was a, you know, selling a, cocaine. Yeah. They were all cocaine addicts, and so he. I, I don't know, man. You know, his story is unrelentingly. You know, he's an old man. I mean, and for his time, right? So I think we were. He died in his. He was eight years older than I was, or nine years older than I was. Mm-hmm. So. He when didn't. Was, to be fair, he he looked he looked about ten years older than that. Like he had yeah. he had riddled his body with. I mean, he did everything. Yeah. yeah. So after he, I mean, we'll we'll come back at some other time if we want to to the cancer thing, um, but um, you know, toward the very end of his life, he went on a boosting because he, he was kind of down on his luck and you mm-hmm. know the money. He was still trying to figure out how to dehydrate. And he had no money, so he took his dots and he went up to the north coast, up to Washington or something. And coming back in California, he got arrested on a boost, some chicken shit boost in Watsonville, I think. He ended up in jail. He hadn't been in jail since he was a child, since he was a boy. He'd never been in jail. And he told me that he'd gotten arrested and he ended up having to go to court and so forth. And they put him in jail. He couldn't get off. So he had to do, I don't know, 60 days or something like that in jail. So this is who this guy was. So he's 57, I think, at that time. Um, and he, uh, is in Salinas County jail and he, uh, is in with a bunch of Latino dudes and he doesn't speak Spanish and they start to fuck with him. This is his recounting of the story, which I have no reason to disbelieve. And he's terrified because he's like, he told me, he says, you know, I'm not young anymore. You know, I was, a, I was a baller when I was younger, but I'm this older dude. I haven't been working out. Um, all of which was a lie in a way because Felsenfeld worked out a lot. You know, mm-hmm. the year before, the year after he had cancer, before he became, before he turned into a drug addict, uh, to get rid of the shit taste in his mouth, which is a whole other episode, he went skiing for six months, just skied like a bastard because he loved to ski, and he was fit as could be. So on this trip, he still had some of that left in him, but he was an older man, you know, and, and he smoked and shit. So there he is in jail, and he starts getting, you know, intimidated by these dudes. Um, one in particular, he tells me. So he's there like eight days or nine days into a 90-day sentence, and this guy starts bracing him. Um, and uh, so this is the way he told me. He says, you know, Rust, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I, I don't want to talk to this guy because I realize he'll just think I'm, you know, giving him a lip, and he'll just, you know, be more aggressive. So he says, so here's what we're going to do. And he says, part of it's gonna, you're going to go in there and, uh, in the shower, and you're going to wash that place up. I said, and I just see it all coming, man. And I see them knocking the shit out of me and raping me or just, just eating me up at my ass because they can. And I'm this older white guy and they're just, you know, it's a little entertainment. 
So, so I go in there and I say, yes, sir, boss, you know, and I go in and I take the mop and I get it wet and I mop the floor a little bit and I go in and I know that they're about to come in, him and this other dude. So uh, in he walks and you know that thing you squeeze the mop in that you put the bucket, there's the bucket. He said, you know, they had a plastic bucket, but they had the steel mop mm -hmm. squeezer. So I just hit him with that as hard as I could in the head. And then I hit his buddy with it as hard as I could. I think I broke his arm and I just beat the shit out of both of them. Then uh, the authorities put me in a separate cell. That was it. That was his, he was so fearful in his life, but he was so fierce in himself that he just reverted to dog. And um, that, I, I listened to that and I just went, holy shit. How do people come to be your age? And then I thought of those movies, all those movies, the Italian movies that we see, you know, Scorsese, Goodfellas and all that stuff. And I realized this is that guy. This is a real life person. Yeah, he's somebody who the the only mechanism that ever worked for him, the only the only path he ever and in some weird way, like the only way he ever connected with it, with another human being was violence or exploitation. I mean, oh. I, I think that we, you know, his, his interactions with us were exceptional, like so far off oh, the he, map he, for him. Yeah, he made a, well, that's why it was difficult. And he loved you. He thought you were great. He would always say, you know, I really, Seneca's such a great kid. And, you know, I was like, well, why, why don't you, you know, like live? I mean, I, you, you were with me a lot with him. I mean, all I ever wanted him to do was live. And he just couldn't do it. I remember, I remember talking to you recently about this, you know, so, uh, <clears throat> we were, I was probably a year and a half sober. We'd been living in the house for a while. You were, you know, working in the evenings with Lawrence down at the ranch and, and, uh, I get a call from him and it was late and maybe it wasn't middle of the night, but it was late 1030 or something. Um, and I said, let's go over and visit Felson. It was a beautiful summer night. I mean, pop and warm and Katie did sing and it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. So we go over to this house he's staying in. And, you know, remember, he was obsessive, so he would go on these runs. I don't know if he was taking drugs or if he was just nuts. I'm not sure. I, th I thought he was just nuts. And he would stay up for days at a time. And so we get there, and he's out in that small patio with the adobe, low adobe wall around it and the patio furniture and the sort of olive tree. with, And he had planted 40 or 50 succulents and all these. It was a beautiful little garden like a Japanese sand garden and he had it raked and it was, and he was just obsessively puttering in the garden while we talked. And he started talking about how the landlord was going to put him out. I don't know if you remember this. Um, and he was so angry and I said, well, you know, got to calm down because in your present state, bad things could happen to the landlord and that's not going to, you're going to just go to prison, you know, it's like, God damn it. You know, this fucking guy, et cetera and so forth. And, you know, and at the end, he seemed to calm down. We went home at midnight, and that was that. So weeks pass, find out he's moved, moved down the coast. Mm -hmm. And then well, I'm talking to him one day, and he said, oh, man. He said, did I tell you what I did to that cocksucker in Carmel Valley? And I was like, what do you mean? He said, you know, he told me, you got to move in five days. And so I went down to the wharf, and I bought 10 pounds of squid. And I pried off some of those beautiful redwood boards 
in the kitchen and the dining room and the bathroom and there were a void in there. He's an old house that had built in the 50s, so there was a void. There was no insulation. So I just dropped a couple pounds here and a couple pounds there, and then I put the, put the boards back, and it was the middle of summer. Oh, and he said, and he said, and I was supposed to leave in two weeks, so I left then. So for two weeks, before the day <laughs> I was supposed to be gone, the house was closed up. I'm just listening to this going, Jesus, what? <laughs> and he said, yeah, he said, I heard, I heard that he had to take the house down. <laughs> oh, I said, excuse me? He said, yeah, I heard he had to take it down to the foundation because it was uninhabitable. <laughs> and I thought, oh, yeah, so man. Disturbed. That's the disturbed dude <clears throat> I know. You know, forget talking to the television. This guy doesn't need to talk to the television. He's got his own universe. And I always felt, like you said earlier, there were these people. I always felt somehow blessed that by the accident of fate or, I don't know, however it occurred, that they were facing away from us instead of toward us. Because I could see that have gone bad many directions because I was not oh, yeah. either, you know. And, you know, you've seen me, you know, pull a guy halfway out of a car because I thought he was menacing you and Karen, you know, and I was sober. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had to push him back into the car when I remembered that I was sober. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was a weird, you know, so Belson was dealing with that. And I think he just knew that there was the, that you just didn't, you know, I had that side of the street covered and he, I, that was okay. You know, he was not worried about that. Yeah. You know, it was like a house of equals in Weston, too. You know, welcome to the house. Now you're in the house. Don't fuck the house up. You know, right. And, and I think that was great. You know, what else was there? Oh, I think the last story that we could tell about him that's easy to tell is so he gets finds out he has tongue cancer. You know, I don't know if you remember this. It was quite horrible. Finds out he has cancer of the tongue. Remember that? Well, I think I was already in college by the time this happened, so I wasn't around for it. But you, I remember you telling me about it. Yeah, but, so he, he, he has tongue cancer. The doctor telling me he has a chance of having his whole tongue removed. He says, I'm going to kill myself. If, they take, take, if I can't talk, I'm going to kill myself. Mm -hmm. And I say, okay, I, that's all right. Just don't do it with a gun. He says, I, I, you only use guns to shoot other people. <laughs> That was his explanation. I'm not going to shoot myself. Are you fucking kidding? I'll just overdose. Like, you know, anybody can do that. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, I don't want to leave you people a big mess. And I was like, okay, good. You know, just want to make sure because um, I'm not down with the housekeeping problem. Um, so he said, okay, done, no problem. So I go visit him several times in the hospital while he's having treatment, right? And he had to have ex he had a lot of X-ray treatment on his tongue. And at that time, you could lose your tongue, keep it. It was a total crapshoot. And um, Weeks later, it comes out that they killed the cancer, and they didn't have to take much of his tongue, and he lived. But, sidebar, everything he eats literally tastes like fecal matter to him. Oh, God. So, yeah. so now in an ordinary world, one would say, hey, I lived, you know, but he's obsessive. And he's living down the coast. He won't go out. He goes to, he had one 
uh, checker at Safeway that he knew, and he knew the guy's work schedule, and he worked at night, you know, like 12 to 6. And he would go in at 3 o'clock in the morning because he could get that guy to give him exactly what he wanted to have very little conversation. And just you know, it was all very automated in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was what he was doing, back, forth, back, forth. And um, so uh, I didn't see him for a couple months. I was like, that's weird. I'm worried about him. So I go down there to see him. Um, he's high as a kite. I said, dude, I thought you weren't drinking or using. And I thought you were, you know, you got sober. You told me I promised God I'd do good things with my life. And here you are just a fucking hoe bag junkie. So how the fuck did that happen? And you were never a junkie. Now I see injecting materials in the house. I go in the bathroom. There's a bunch of fucking drugs and pharmaceuticals. And, uh, he goes, let me tell you what happened. I decided that I couldn't live like that. And so I had all this Delantin around that I had stored up, just in case. So I took it all. Just said, I'll, they'll just find my body. It'll, you know, it'll be fine. So I took it all, laid down, and lights out. Four days later, I woke up on the bathroom floor. I'm, I'm listening. I'm not remarking. I was like, okay, failed suicide attempt. Not that unusual. He said, and the taste was gone. And before he could even finish the sentence, I went, oh, so you did, <laughs> you, <laughs> in your incredible wisdom, connected the dots and said, Delanton, if I take Delanton, a lot of Delanton, I will be able to taste food again. He said, exactly. So I just I just went and got $40,000 of Delantin, and I'm set for life, and I'm just going to shoot Delantin until I'm dead. Oh, God. <laughs> and I said, you were always so down on drug addicts and, and people who shot drugs. You never did that. He said, that was then, this is now. <laughs> that was his answer. I was like, okay, how do you, you know, how do you with that? So I think to to sum up the experiences of Michael Felsen, I mean, I, the, I would eat, I would gladly write a book about Felsen. He is he is one of the great true life, certainly the most accomplished criminal I ever met, period. No question. He made many millions of dollars doing things in which no one got hurt except the victims of their own <laughs> self abuse. And, uh, and I think Danny Thomas lost a couple of hundred grand to him. Um, <laughs> But he shouldn't have been into, uh, you know, what he was into. And um, so, you know, I'm glad. Aren't you glad you knew the guy? I am. He's probably, I mean, he, he, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad that I knew him. I think it's not fair to say that no one one got hurt by Felsen. I think those kinds of characters. Okay, I mean, this part's from the guys he beat with the shotgun. No, no, no. But you know what I mean? Like, I think those kinds of, those kinds of characters, they, they they injure themselves, but they do. To I think to be fair, they do a tremendous amount of damage to the people around. We were, we were not on the receiving end of it. Some we 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 were entertained by him, and you certainly tried to be supportive of him and help him not die as long as you were able to. Do. But I can't. I I, I think <laughs> yeah. No, I think you, you can't. A lot of people. Yeah, you can't look at a guy like that from any neutral point of view and go like, yeah, it's you know. Even no, in, tr- in truth, you're right. He was. We were basically on the, uh, we were on the beach side of the island, not the refuse dump side of the island. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I mean, for us, he was absolutely, he was, he was bizarrely charming, endlessly entertaining, just oh, yeah. insane and in all sorts of hilarious ways. But I think he hurt a lot of people in his life and mostly and, in, and eventually, ultimately himself. I mean, yeah. he, he, he visited incredible amounts of pain and suffering on himself and the people who were around him for a shockingly single. long amount of time. Yeah. yeah, that's why he's single. He could never stay in a relationship. And, how, yeah. and he, how could he? He could not do it. And, he, and I kept telling him, well, you know, it's the behavior, right? You know, and he wanted that. So, of course, he yeah. deprived himself of that, too. But but he had brought pain to people. I met a couple of his ex-girlfriends from earlier in his life. And, man, they they cared about him, but at a distance. Yeah. Well, that's probably the only way they found to be safe. I don't know. I mean, it's such a hard thing to say because, you know, like I, I had... Um, I have a tremendous amount of compassion for people who suffer from those kinds of things and the other the other people like that, Anselm and Weston and other people who were in our lives who fit that same bill. It's like they were amazing people with huge hearts and at the same time they were people who did violence and uh, did a lot of harm to people emotionally and physically and I don't know what to say about that at the end of the day. There's not an, there's not an ethical balance sheet, you know. I, I'm, I don't know. But it's... That's a that's a powerful that's a powerful notion, we, we, you know the 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 rumor the the desire for constancy in the human dialogue is to say there is accountability and that there are places on the left of good and on the right of good, and in those cases there's there was tremendous ambivalence about who got what part of that program, and mm-hmm. because we were shielded from. Well, you were absolutely shielded from it. They all treated you like you were the magical creature, and they would never show you any of that vitriol. Or, I remember or even that. when even the even the couple of times that you took me to the the cocaine lab, I remember Anselm just getting furious with you that you'd brought me there, which is oh, so yeah. so interesting, right? To think about he's <laughs> he's he's questioning your judgment. You know, it's it's just so weird. You know, but that but yeah, there was a there was an absolute line against oh, yeah. having me exposed to any of the bad shit that you did together. You you were making your own choices, but I think they all perceived me as somebody who was getting dragged into things that, that I... That... Yeah, and they were not down with it, and they and they no. were, you know, I was threatened with violence by uh, Weston over that. Yeah, sure. Like, you're not going to, you're not taking a little man into that shit, you know, or if somebody's going to get hurt, it ain't going to be him, you know. I mean, he definitely threatened me, no question. So did Anselm. But Anselm was more, a little more, Anselm was more like catatonic about it. It was like, you know, uh, you can't be doing that. Uh, and uh, then he would have that curious look on his face and he'd go, because uh, things go bad and you can't have Seneca in that. You're not going to have Seneca in that. <laughs> it's like, if that's all you need to say, it's like, okay, I get it. You know, message received. It is weird. I mean, I think it's, it's, I've, I used, I think you, you, said something earlier about dogs and I use the word feral and there's something that's true about those kinds of people in that when they're that damaged and there's been that much hurt that's sort of unrecoverable and they're expressing that pain in all of these incredibly self-destructive and outwardly destructive ways like there is something there is also on the back end of all of that an insane loyalty like a, oh. a, a conviction and a loyalty to the people that they are loyal to that is unshakable. It's so weird. Oh, yeah. 
No, I mean, I, I, I have to say very interestingly, you know, so I'm not fascinated by the fact that I had that life. It's just what was. Um, and they're all dead. And I yeah. luckily sort of I, getting sober certainly was the exit door that I pushed in and looking at the other possibilities at that time, there were increasingly few doors mm -hmm. um, and they didn't hit the door. They stayed in, in that space and they, that place claimed them. But to me, look at Anselm, you know, he didn't speak to me for almost 15 years because he was concerned that I couldn't do it and that I didn't love him because he didn't get sober. Mm -hmm. But the main thing was to keep me from having to deal with it. Mm -hmm. That's real loyalty. Felsen did not invite me into his life and and uh, until the end of his life. And at the very end of his life, two weeks before he actually died, he said that the reason he'd hidden from me the previous year was because he didn't want to burden me because I was his friend and I had been one of the few people who had cared about him. You know, mm -hmm. did yeah, fierce loyalty. And I'll tell you what, when I was, when you were a boy, when I got sober, those people were still very active in their lives. They, we were in our 30s, and they were serious, serious people, let's say, and in a, in a, a mild way of referring to it. Mm -hmm. And they were still active, and they still came into my life, and they left me right the fuck out of it at my request. Mm -hmm. I, I saw nothing of it. It was as though it had just disappeared. And if they were in any contact with me, mostly they were not, they left me right the fuck out of it. Because I had made a decision, and they were loyal to that, not to themselves, in a way. We're, that is true. I'd never thought about that. They really, even in even in leaving my life, they looked after what they thought their obligation was. Pretty interesting. Uh, oddly honorable. <laughs>